ladies and gentlemen, here he is, the Ed Sullivan of Subversion. Are you serious? Okay, welcome to Neophiles. Uh, we're here today with world-renowned mathematician and science fiction writer, Rudy Rucker. Hi, Ken. Hi, Rudy. Good Been to a meet while. You. Yeah, fun to see you again. In the early uh, 1980s, he became identified with the cyberpunk science fiction movement, and later he coined his own term to describe his work, and that was transrealism, and uh, he'll probably talk about that a little bit later in the show. Influential math books on mathematics include The Fourth Dimension and Infinity in the Mind. Novels include Software, The Sex Sphere, Wetware, Hacker, The Hacker and the Ants, Master of Space and Time, Spaceland, and his great current release, Freck and the Elixir, uh, which we'll be talking about later today. Coming up also is his nonfiction work, The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul, What Gnarly Computation Taught Me About Ultimate Reality, The Meaning of Life, and How to Be Happy. There you go. I, I, I need to uh, learn all about this, actually. Uh, before I talk to Rudy, uh, let me say that Neophiles is sponsored by Life Enhancement Products, makers of fine vitamin and nutrient concoctions. Uh, go to Life Enhanced Life enhancement.com and check it out. So uh, welcome again, Rudy. Yeah, it's interesting to be here. We're in this sort of grungy loft in the Tenderloin. I feel like we're, I feel like I'm playing Half-Life and we're in the, <laughs> there's a scene just like this in Half-Life. I'm waiting for the troopers to bust down the door. Yeah, we are too, actually. We've uh, scheduled that, that into your experience today. Uh, so I, I love this novel, man, uh, Freck and the Elixir. I, in some ways, it's my favorite uh, Rudy Rucker novel That's so nice far. Uh, you know, and at first when I started reading, I thought, Duh, it's going to be sort of silly and whimsical, and uh, do I, am I going to have to read the whole thing? And then as I got into it, I actually discovered that it's an incredibly sharp satire of contemporary America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someday it may be uh, remembered as being sort of the uh, Gulliver's Travels, I think, of, uh, of these times. I, I, some people compared it to Tolkien, but I, was, I thought of uh, Gulliver, actually, the Unipuskers as the uh, Yahoos. Yes. So uh, maybe set the, set the scene a little bit about uh, uh, what the novel is about and where it takes place. Well, so I wanted to go into the far future. Um, there, there are a couple of things that, that I set out to do in this book. Most cyberpunk novels are typically in the the near future, uh, you know, in the next hundred years. And I thought it would be also generally they tend to be set on Earth or the Moon. And I, I wanted to reach this time and, and get get some distance. So I went to the year three thousand, and it's about a boy who makes a this epic quest to the center of the galaxy. And uh, Another thing I wanted to do, I wanted to have sort of a, a, an epic style novel, and what I did in laying it out, actually, I happened to come across Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which, of course, every English major has read, but 
being a math major, I, I had never actually read the book. I'd seen it, but I'd never read it until about the time when I wrote Freck. And I noticed in there that here's the monomyth with it has 17 stages. And I thought, wow, this, I, I always, another thing I wanted to do was to write a long book. Generally, I, I've written my books have been about 100,000 words. And I thought it'd be nice to stretch out to about 150. Um, and I, th I thought, well, if I have this, this plot outline, it'll make it easy. Because uh, I noticed the, the monomyth has the 17 stages. And I said, well, I'll do 17 chapters. I'll do one for each stage. And that'll give the book this nice uh, sort of satisfying epic ah, feel. So that's neat. I didn't. Uh, so, so there's an underlying uh, uh, Joseph Campbell uh, mythos there. Yeah, chapter one is the call. Chapter two is the helper. Chapter three is uh, refusal of the call. Then there's chapter four, the the threshold, right. and then the next stage is the belly of the whale. Like they're all very general. And then so there's right. this, and I thought, what does that mean? Well, it basically means you get inside a UFO and it takes you somewhere. Right. That's, yeah, that's a nice whale. Yeah. 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 So I mean, in the storyline itself, the Earth's biome has been destroyed by new biocom. And uh, what you have there is a very limited number of mutant food and animal groups. Right. It's, it's sort of one way to think of it. If, imagine if Microsoft took over the, the genome on Earth, if they controlled it, and they would say, well... Well, this is what I thought about, actually, when the Terminator seed uh, thing came out. You uh -huh. know, the, the biotech company that was building a seed that would, that would only produce once and, and terminate. Exactly. It's like yeah. re renew your software in order to have more food. Right. You'll have yeah, plants that can't reproduce themselves. You have to buy the new seeds. And uh, you can only reproduce if you have like the, the proper code. And the code changes every day. Right. And so you, it, it's, it's very controlled. And so then they're down to 256 species. And Freck would like to restore the uh, Earth's biome and you know bring back. We have billions of species uh, to bring them back. And then the question is, how is he going to do it? And uh, he's going to go to the center of the galaxy and find this, this hole that goes into an alternate world where they sort of have saved the past in some sense. Right. But, yeah, I mean, he doesn't know any of that when it no, starts no. out. He's, it's uh, not clear at all. Uh, something appears under his bed, actually. Yeah, that was – there's also this – I mean, I was thinking of my son's room. When we – when my children were younger, we lived in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, of all places. Oh, it was one of God's jokes. Home, home of Jerry Falwell. <laughs> yeah. Said, you're going to found cyberpunk with these other guys, and we'll also put you in the town where Jerry Falwell lives. <laughs> it was uh, – but – we one thing about living there. I mean, it was peaceful. We had a big yard. Our house, by California standards, I don't know. It would cost like a billion dollars, you know. Right. <laughs> it had like ten rooms, you know, and uh, it was just a crummy old house. And my son Rudy Jr. had this very messy room, and we would always shove stuff under his bed. And then I imagined, I just had this image of a boy whose room is so messy that there's a UFO under his bed and he doesn't right. notice. <laughs> so that's sort of the starting and point. And his mom is doing the usual clean your room shtick. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of uh, mathematical dimensions to uh, this novel. Um, 
And uh, actually, last week on a uh, different program on the uh, Are You Serious show, we had Jack Sarfati in. And uh, you, I'm sure you know uh, Jack, the wild man of physics. And he was talking about the time travel implications of dark matter, which you seem to go into in, in the book. What do, what do you think about all that? What's, what's, uh, what's uh, the Rudy Rucker Yeah, Jack's an interesting character. Before I moved to, to California, I started hearing... I'd written a book on the fourth dimension, and I started getting letters from Jack Sarfati and Nick Herbert, and I always thought it would be neat to come out here and meet them. Uh, the, the, the dark, and, so, and it was neat to meet them. Uh, Nick Herbert, in some ways, inspired my character, Frank Shook, in my novel, Saucer Wisdom. Mm-hmm. But any, yeah. You hang out with Nick. Yeah. Right. Getting back to your question, though, well, dark matter, at any given period in science fiction, there's some generalized, or several generalized MacGuffins that, from science, legitimate science, that you draw on. And it becomes this sort of magic wand. And in the, in the 40s, like radiation and even radio were, were fairly odd notions. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, why did the incredible shrinking man shrink radiation? Oh, all right, now I understand it. And uh, and then when I was coming up in science fiction in the in the 80s, quarks were pretty outré. And so if I needed to make some like omnipotent armor, or if I needed to make an anti gravity disc, I'd make it out of quarkonium. And you know, oh, okay, I see right. how that works. And and so now it's dark matter is we we don't know what it is, and right. uh, and it's a useful thing to draw on. The, the, the so I, you, I don't, you don't actually have any theories about it getting you across the universe very quickly, mm. like uh, like Jack does. At, well, at this point. my, my method for getting mature? across the universe is, is what I called yunching, and I, th- that's again that draws on string theory, which is another mm. of these sort of semi fabulous, semi mythical. Yeah, all right, I'll describe how that works. So. Yeah, that's a, a nice idea. It's uh, I read this book, um, the Elegant Universe which a lot of people have read, a nice book about string theory by Brian Greene. And in there he says there's this duality between size and uh, winding. And essentially his idea is that string, your par- a particle is this string that's, that's wrapped up. And he says that it's a little bit the opposite of what you'd expect. If you wrap the string more tightly, then the object gets bigger. And if you unwrap the string a little bit, the object gets smaller. If you're thinking about ordinary string, you'd think if you wrapped it more tightly, right. it would get... But in any case, supposedly by adjusting the, the components of your, your fundamental particles, you could sort of change the size of your, your atoms and, and of your entire body. And so then I said, okay, well, what I will do, I will wrap all the strings in my body much tighter, and that will make me get really big. So I'll get to be the size of the galaxy. Then I'll take one giant step... And then that's yunching. You you yunch, you get big. And then right. I'll take the step across the galaxy because I'll, I'll be so big, it'll be easy for me. And then I'll unyunch and I'll shrink again. Reform. So right. you get big. Then you know. Then Jupiter's not so far after all, or even the center of the galaxy's not so far. And then you go there, and then you shrink. And so that's a. That, I thought that was a really nice trick. Uh, I actually I, I discovered one thing about science fiction. Almost any idea you can think of 
it's not so much having the new idea, really. It's, it's putting it into a cohesive story. And there is somebody else who actually thought of that way of space travel before, a guy called Harry Harrison. And he called it the bloater drive. So you bloat out, you wrap your strings tightly, bloat out. Yeah. I thought I remembered he became, your character became about one-third the size of the universe at first. Well, yeah, he wasn't he quite is, the size of the galaxy, uh, yeah, about a third. But a, a, few, a few leaps he could uh, get towards where he wanted well, to Well, later, of course, you might remember it gets stuck. He winds up in the wrong place. Well, the, the, the expansion gets stuck, and they just can't stop growing. Right. And then uh, they get to the maximum size. It turns out our universe, at least in this book, has a maximum size. And they're up there talking to this strange, whatever it is, some kind of angel or something. Right. So, I mean, this guy, uh, Freck, he, he's an Earth boy, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a, uh, a degenerate form of Earth. His father is kind of a boho who took off for uh, what I take to be uh, some kind of a, uh, a sort of... Uh, uh, sort of an ashram. Uh, yeah, a Sikh Hindu. Yeah. A sort of a, a new age eco uh, dropout asteroid. Yeah. And then he goes out into the galaxy, and uh, what he discovers among the races basically are uh, a lot of uh, reality television or a lot of reality virtual virtual reality television producers. Yes. <laughs> this is what he, dis- he, he finds yeah. out there, trying to uh, sign him up. I wonder in the tradition of uh, Rudy Rucker's transrealism, which you might describe now, if uh, you were negotiating with uh, TV producers while you were uh, writing this book. Uh, well, yeah, Ken mentioned transrealism. That's a, a word I've, I've been using for oh, a long time to mean my habit of basing my science fiction on events in my real life. So I take the real and then I trans, I transmute it into into science fiction. And that's not something that I'm always doing. Uh, Like Freck is not really that trans real of a book. Uh, Maybe at the at local, at small levels it might be. There's things like the, the messy, my son's messy bedroom but uh, I haven't specifically I mean I've had some dealings with Hollywood but uh, to some extent this was the, the thing that you're talking about is this there's several, two races of aliens get in touch with Earth and I thought uh, they'll be the sort of bad ones and the, the less bad ones and given that one of my Bet noir about culture these days is McDonald'sization and monoculture. I thought, okay, the bad guys should have some name that connotes one, and so they're the Unipuskers. Okay, the Unipuskers, and they have a planet where there's only one kind of plant. They're like very wanting everything to be the same. The mauling of the of the, the universe, and then the 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 guys that are less bad. They have a name that connotes multif- multifarousness, so they're uh, Orpolis, so Or and Poly, so mm-hmm. it's Orpolis and then Unipusk. Right. So, uh, but what they both want from us is essentially they have uh, this device called a brain caster, brain cast. B R A N E. Yeah, B R A N E, and that's again another lifting some 
the riches of modern physics. That's a, a physics buzzword, brain. Yeah. Maybe we can come back to what that is yeah. after you describe this. And they want to enable aliens all over the galaxy to essentially be able to tune in on any of us. And it's the brain, brain casting works. You don't actually, it's more like telepathy. It's not like they have to put cameras down on Earth. They can just sort of tight beam in on one person and look through their eyes and see their thoughts. And, uh, which is, you know, the perfect uh, reality show. And that's stage one. And then stage two is going to be to make it more like a video game, as well as looking through a person's eyes, like some squid and nebula Z is going to be able to say, well, I'm watching, you know, I'm watching Are You Doing This? But it'd be kind of cool if he ran out in the street and took a dump on the sidewalk right now. <laughs> you know, you push a button and do that. And then, you that's know, watch that's not hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> not so hard to watch. In this neighborhood, probably nothing would happen. You know? <laughs> but uh, so th- then that, you know, starts to wreak total havoc with us. And, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I was thinking about reality shows. Uh, it, it's more... There's that, that you're getting into that Gulliver's Travels thing about, you know, how far could you push it? Yeah, I mean, the Unipuskers are particularly, I mean, they're, they're very hilarious. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's a consumer, a media consumer culture in, entirely. Yes. And I love the way they, uh, they speak. They uh, have this uh, way of talking um, in commands, actually. Yeah, where, that where was they, the trick. They, yeah, they speak their intentions and they reveal their their they their are. motivations when they're when they're supposed to be being cagey yeah. cagey negotiators. Yeah, they speak only in the imperative. Like instead of saying you know hello, they'll say greet Freck. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that, let me see if uh, you feel like reading something. Sure. Yeah, I need to read that uh, that paragraph there, which uh, distinguish myself. Yeah. Okay, so this is, uh, among the Unipuskers, there's this one who's a craftsman. He's somewhat of, a, of an artisan. And they're able, to, they're able to make objects out of thin air, essentially just by thinking about them. And he makes things that are interesting to them. Distinguish myself from the mass of Unipuskers, said Evart in his light, mocking voice. Brag that I am a saucer pilot and not a vegetative consumer whose primary excitement in life derives from his esping brain and manipulating alien creatures such as you. Frankly, question the morality of esping brain. Admit that the process saps the vitality of the peoples whom we esp. Gruffly state that, nevertheless, I make my living by helping Hob and Calm find talent races like yourself. Shrug off the degenerative consequences of our projected activities upon your race. Self-forgivingly observe that there are, after all, trillions upon trillions of talent races in the galaxies. Compare you to a single ripe berry in an endless forest of rick-rack trees. Terminate our conversation ostensibly to concentrate upon my piloting duties, but primarily to make you feel weak and unimportant. <laughs> so uh, this is not... Uh, uh Great tricky negotiating that the that the Unipuskers. Right. I mean, they, they rely on th- ultimately they, they rely on, on threat. threats. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The way they look, actually, somebody gave me for my birthday once some. You know, in in Japan, they make these action figures of of monsters that right. may or may not actually exist. And somebody gave me this action figure, and it just looked really cool. It's this sort of leathery-looking character, and his head, instead of his head, there's this big clamshell resting there. 
so the clam is like horizontal on top of his neck. So it's like the shell edge is sort of like the mouth, and it just flaps. Yeah. And that was uh, mm-hmm. what they look like. That's great. Also, uh, um, there's a character in the book who's not a Unipusker but gets involved with the Unipuskers. Uh, uh, well, there's there's Freck's father, um, whose name I can't uh, remember Carb. at the moment, but his, his uh, girlfriend, Jessica Sunshine, yeah. uh, which is a great character from Sikh Hindu, and uh, I think uh, I, I know her for sure. Well, she's uh, definitely a, a Californian, <laughs> yes. Jessica Sunshine, yeah. <laughs> Describe Jessica Sunshine. She's, well, she's it's, it's somebody that, you know, superficially acts new agey, but you just scratch, you just peel off the one little speck of veneer, and you've got somebody that's just completely grasping and self-serving and bossy and just hair-trigger temper, always angry. You run into... I love going to Santa Cruz, but I would say (laughs) Jessica Sunshine. There are... You do meet people like that in Santa Cruz that are... It's just... It seems like they're always in a bad mood, you know, and, and everything is always such a crisis, and they're the center of the universe, and it's the star tripping new age kind yeah. of the the uh, the the space commanders, yeah. <laughs> or space, you know, yeah. But notice, I left at the end. They the a few of their enemies got killed off, but Jessica Sunshine is still alive, and she'll she'll be back to make more trouble. She's she's the so mother. you're a little bit fond of the character in your own way. Well, you, you need your villains as much as you need your your heroes. Yeah, in, in the course of the book, Freck meets this young girl. I think she's a year or two older than him, and they become friends. Her name's Renata. And yeah, Renata's mother is, is this uh, nefarious Jessica Sunshine. And I'm think, I actually am planning to do a sequel. I was, just, oh, good. Oh. I was just in New York. I met with my publishers, and they say Freck's doing pretty well, and so a sequel would be a reasonable thing to do. It would make a good movie also. I mean, the, the, the dimensions, uh, the, the, the satirical dimensions of it, you know, are, are pretty recognizable. Uh, well, that's, it would be nice. Uh, on the movie front, there is some hope. Um, my novel, Master of Space and Time, um, which is kind of a, a three wishes story. It's about two mad scientists who get control of ability to alter reality and they, they make these three wishes and uh, the French director Michel Gondry has the option to that movie and to that book and I've talked to him in the last couple of months I talked to him a couple of times and got some email from him and he seems to be pretty serious about making this his next movie this is the guy who did the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, yeah, that was wonderful. Well, yeah, I mean, if we could get Charlie great... Kaufman to uh, write the... Uh... Well, that, yeah, I, I certainly... Having Charlie write the script would be nice. Uh, Do you have any desire to write the script yourself? Um, well, m- my experience... I went through this with software, was under option to Phoenix Pictures for about 10 years, and they did 11 scripts, and... I was begging them, you know, send me in, coach, let me do it. But they never would. And uh, I think my sense is that they just prefer to have script writers do the scripts. And also, yeah, so I, I, think, it's, I think it's unlikely they would ask me to do the script. And it's also doesn't, it seems to be working for film is, for a writer is uh, somewhat thankless. 
kind of job. Well, it's a whole different style of writing, too, obviously. Well, you uh, want to write... John Shirley is... Uh, well, he has, does it, uh, yeah. Does quite you want to write very fast, because there's a very high probability that whatever you've written is going to be thrown away. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you don't want to put too much uh, blood, and, blood yeah. and sweat into it. But, uh, but yeah, if, if Gondry makes the movie, that would be great, because he's a great director. And, yeah, he said he might get Jim Carrey and Jack Black to be the two mad scientists. Some critics, uh, I notice, or, or, or some of the people on the back of your book uh, compare this to uh, Tolkien. Are you, are you interested in uh, having that kind of uh, the well, ongoing yeah. trilogy kind of situation? Yeah. Um, oddly enough, I had never read Tolkien until about maybe six months before I wrote Freck because the movies were about to come out, and I thought... Well, I better. I've, I haven't read The Lord of the Rings. I, I better read it now before it's sort of spoiled forever right. by the movies in my mind. And I, I really enjoyed them. There was. He was so thorough. There was a funny thing about Tolkien, where if somebody, if some group of people have to go a hundred miles, like most authors would, then maybe give you one scene on the road. But he'll he'll show you every mile. You know, he, he won't fast forward. It's right. an odd thing that he does. Well, he apparently, I mean, he he sketched out his worlds really in, in even more richness than is portrayed in, in the books. Yeah. Are you interested in, in that kind of thing? Oh, I, I always sketch things out. Actually, if you're if you're interested in Freck, I have a, a document that's almost as long as the book, which is online. Uh, oh, yeah, you page. do post those. those yeah, uh, yeah Rudy the, the software of your books in, yeah, in, some, in some ways. That's something I do now for every novel. I keep a notes document while I'm going along. Psychologically, that's a good thing because sometimes there's a scene that you really should cut because it slows the action down or it's too hard for the reader. But you say, this is so beautiful, I can't stand to cut it. But then you put it in your notes document, right. and you can always post that. And so, so do, you, do, you, do you have a, uh, a few Rudy Rucker fanatics who uh, know as much about you as you do and that, that sort of thing? Uh I think there's a, there's some out there. I get a, a fair amount of email. One gratifying thing about Freck is I've been getting, I think, more email about this book than my other books. Mm-hmm. And people saying things similar to you that they, they thought it was my most enjoyable book that they'd read. So that's that's good. And that it's encouraging because then, yeah, it gives me the sort of opening to say, well, I could do another Freck book. Right. Uh, Did you feel when you were writing it that uh, your powers as an author were coming to their full fruition, or you just think that you were you were doing? Well, I, I did book? actually feel like I was working at a, a really high level. I, I thought it was really coming together in, in a very nice way, um, to the point where. Then when I got an offer for the book, then I was like angry. You know, that's not enough money. This is too good. (laughs) Should have held out. Uh, Well, the thing is, you got a decent percentage anyway. Oh yeah, they never pay up. Well, maybe you've got a decent book company. Well, you only get so many offers, and at at this point in my career, I have friends my age who can't publish at all anymore. So I can't be too. Oh yeah, the book industry is uh, is. In a in a wreck. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think well, I'm currently finishing a book. It's uh, about a couple of crazy mathematicians. It's called Mathematicians in Love. And uh, after that, I think I will start gearing up for another freck. Probably the second volume won't be as long. Uh, 
that's a, there's a sort of commercial constraint. They don't really like to put out longer volumes, at least for, for mid-list authors like myself, because they don't want to charge more than like $25 for the book. And the, there, there's something having to do with the, the, the retail price of a book that a bookstore wants to sell and how many pages it can right. be. Right, they're spending more money on the, on the paper or whatever. Yeah, so, and anyway, for them, the sweet spot is about 100,000 words. So, uh, in fact, they'd wanted to, my editor had suggested splitting this book into two, but we looked at the midpoint, and things were sort of just getting rolling at the midpoint. Yeah, so I, don't, I don't think it would have worked. It, would, it wouldn't have worked. But, uh, so the next one will probably be a little bit shorter, but then I might do more than one more. Uh, one thing is, I, I don't feel like I can go back and immediately use the monomyth again, so this time I think I'll sort of fall back more on my usual storytelling abilities and simply set a novel in, in the, the universe mm -hmm. with, uh, without quite that, that classic armature that I had. Well, I do hope you continue along with uh, some of the same themes because uh, oh, yeah. that's pretty, pretty hilarious. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your upcoming nonfiction book, uh, the Life Box, the Seashell, and the Soul. What's uh, what's that about? In, well, in five words, no, just it's uh -huh. well, it's about the idea that everything is a gnarly computation, and uh, that's computation viewed in a sort of inclusive sense. You might say, I mean, this sounds boring. Am I saying that everything is just this buzzing beige box? And the idea is rather that. It's useful to look at things like the weather or your moods or society's vicissitudes to regard these as huge distributed computations. Now, why is this a useful thing to do? Well, we have certain patterns that we've noticed as computer scientists, and uh, that's one of the, the things I've been as a computer scientist. We notice there's different styles of computation that can emerge. There's ones that are very simple, that sort of die down to some fixed points. There's ones that thrash in a very messy, random-looking fashion. And then there's the ones that are in between, which are the things that we like, like living organisms, where they're gnarly. That's a word that I use to mean something that's complicated but not featureless. Gnarly has a certain connotation. It's something that you like. It's, it's yeah, I it's like gnarly. Groovy in a way. It's it's a, it's a word that I I, I yeah, picked that, up that when I moved surfer, to California. That was a surfer surfer vibe there. Uh, yeah, the first time I heard writing the gnarl. Yeah, seek the gnarl. Seek the gnarl. That, that's sort of the slogan that probably you should put on my gravestone if I get a gravestone. Seek the gnarl. That's uh, that's been my slogan for a long time. It's sort of guided a lot of my activities. And you've worked on chaos software and... Uh, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is... So when you talk about the universe being a computation, mm -hmm. people say, oh, yeah, well, the universe is information, and that sounds sort of dry. Yes. But you're not talking about something that's dry. You're talking about something that's very rich and chaotic yeah. And, and... Yeah, I want to talk about something that's rich and chaotic and messy and interesting. Yeah, and information, people have always said the universe is information, but, see, computation is... In a way, it sort of adds another element because that's not information that's just sitting there. It's information. That, it's something that's doing Being something. Processed it's kneading the information. Yeah. 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 And uh, this was the. I mean, I came to Silicon Valley in 1982, and at that time, or no, I guess it was 86. 
And at that time I thought, well, I'll do a book about this. I mean, I've done a nonfiction book about infinity, about the fourth dimension. I'll do one about computation. But then I, I sort of just got sucked into the vortex of the the Silicon Valley thing that happened in the last 20 years. Right. And I became a computer science professor. I worked as a programmer. I was associated with Mondo 2000. Um, that was, uh, and those were like really exciting times. And you could say that sometimes they, they'll send a journalist somewhere and the, he goes native on the story. You know, right. he just sort of settles in and forgets about writing it. Well, and it seems like this book is going to be, to, to a large extent, about your life as well, about yeah. your, your per, in, inner processes. Yeah, and, I made it a sort of somewhat transreal, transreal nonfiction. Yeah, I wrote about right. my, my, my experiences a little bit. There, like the, the day I went to Tim Leary's apartment in Hollywood and I had this Cam Six Sailor Automaton board, and right. I took his PC apart and got got it so Tim could see Sailor Automata. Oh, is it, did he like that? Oh yeah, he was thrilled. Yeah. yeah, well he was. You know, he was always so open to new ideas. Uh, he was an amazing. Character. Well, whoever would uh, come in his presence, Tim would say, "Huh, oh, you're." Here. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> he was always amazed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always admired his his constitution that he could. Yeah. He could. He was uh, in a constant screen refresh. Yeah. <laughs> I could never live like Surprised that. Surprised again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's so that's finally done. That was a that was a big a big push to get that book done. It was hard, and uh, in the process, I managed to retire from teaching computer science, which is. Uh, Nice. So now I'm just writing, and uh, I probably I don't plan to do much and more in the way of computer programming. I, I kind of I've had enough of that. Uh, but I, I maintain a blog, RudyRucker.com/blog, and there's you know a minimal amount of programming that comes with that. There's uh, it's always a struggle keeping the the bots from spamming your comment. Oh God, that's painful. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, it's really biological co-evolution, you know. I mean, right. the bots are evolving, my yeah. filters are evolving. So I mean, describe uh, the, the life box aspect of this. You've been talking about this for, uh, for some time. And I mean, some people will say that, that the whole concept will be replaced by actually being able to, you know, download yourself uh, right. the software. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, in, the, in my book, The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul, that title is it, sort of a, a dialectic triad and the life box is the thesis it's the idea that you could get a computer model of yourself and then the soul is your sense that well the model is not me you know I'm, I'm, right. I am this thing different and the seashell is the synthesis and it's seashell used in a specific sense Stephen Wolfram got into this South Pacific cone shell that has a uh, patterns on its shell that resemble one-dimensional cellular automata and it's sort of a symbol of the fact that computations can be very gnarly in the meantime let me do a footnote here i've become obsessed with cone shells i went to really? diving yeah. in micronesia and i was looking for them and i met these people who are experts on them and they have this venom that's in, it's incredibly hallucinogenic and the, really? The, yeah, the Mondo crew would have been really interested in them. Uh, it's 
Well, it's such so strong that to come down, they have to give you shock treatment. <laughs> <laughs> and, I haven't had that one. <laughs> and the other thing, to take it, you can't just uh, inject conotoxins. They're called the venom of the ah, seal. So this is one of the, the venom of the venom. Because pollution. it'll stop your heart if it gets into your bloodstream. You should instead have to have it like dripped into your spinal fluid. <laughs> <laughs> now, is this is this real? Is this, this uh, is one real. of those Hunter Thompson stories? No, no, uh, it's real. And this this drug was <laughs> patented uh, by a company. I, I can't remember the name, but if you look on my blog, you can search. Sherman Pharmaceuticals. Or, well, uh, it, it's like it's the last resort pain reliever. You know, if, oh, if morphine's not uh-huh. doing it for you, you get some conotoxins. And but the side effects are persistent hallucinations that won't go away. But uh, so I made the some of the aliens in this novel that I'm writing now. I always like to play off my nonfiction and my fiction. Right. So the aliens are cone shells from another galaxy, and <laughs> there's this bad guy, and they eat him. You know, <laughs> they actually eat fish. These little things. They look like snails, but they'll send out this harpoon and. Uh, they have this tendril, like a harpoon, and they have this detachable tooth in it that's full of conotoxins. So it shoots over, sticks in the in the, the fish, and the fish is paralyzed. And then they open up their siphon and swallow the fish. Uh-huh. And about an hour later, they, they regurgitate the, the bones wrapped in mucus. So, so I had them do this to this character in, in Santa Cruz. That's, a, that's definitely a colorful uh, Yeah. Colorful, uh, they find this guy's skeleton in the pumpkin patch, you know, wrapped in snot. <laughs> what did you do to that man? You know, it wasn't me. It was, oh, look, there's a siphon sticking out of the, the sand. They like to hide mm-hmm. in the sand. But anyway, that's uh, coming back to Lifebox, that's this idea I've always had that it's, well, a blog is a little bit like a Lifebox because uh, you, you, you have a search and you can fill in the search window and say, like, tell me, you know, Rudy, tell me about conotoxins. And then it would pop up about five entries that I've made relating to Mm -hmm. conotoxins. And with a little bit of AI, as long as you get a big enough database about things that you've said, things you've written, or video images of you, as long as you get, and the software is, the software already exists, it doesn't have to be that smart, something to query the database, you know, in a reasonably, you know, good way. Well, I should say what it is, it's basically the preservation of someone's Intelligence. Well, the idea is, like, suppose that, you know, suppose in a hundred years, you, somebody, one of your heirs, progenitors, no, heirs, uh, followers, uh, and are you serious of the future? Suppose he said, I'd like to have Rudy Rocker on my show, and, but he's dead. Well, I, I'll get this, this box. That, Rudy. Sim, that will, that sim will, Rudy. Yeah, that will emulate Rudy. Simulated Rudy. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that's the that's the goal of the life right. box, and it's a it's a common wish that people have, particularly when they retire. They say, "Well, I'd like to write my memoirs, so my grandchildren will know what I'm like." Right. And then people find out that writing is more difficult than they realized, because your life is this branching fractal, and writing is a, a line. And how do I pick things out and arrange them? And the virtue of a sort of life box would be something like a cell phone that you wear, 
and you would just it would ask you questions in a friendly voice and you would tell it stories tell like anecdotes and it would accumulate this data and then provide a uh, you know a reasonable probably a, a spoken interface so you could say to a grandpa tell me about tell me about uh, your dates in high school and then you know you know grind away and it'll come up with some stories perhaps relating to grandpa's dates and in some sense i mean we're doing a better job of preserving aspects of ourselves now as a culture part of part of the uh uh the culture that in some sense you make fun of in in freck also this you know uh, a reality programming and everybody in some sense is doing their own reality programming you know making clips of their of their lives well, I that's think, yeah. yeah. That, that's coming go on more and more with mm-hmm. blogging, and something I'm writing about a lot these days too is vlogging, video blogging, right? Which will be a lot more prevalent. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid uh, we've uh, run out of time. Uh, I want to thank Rudy Rucker for joining me, and it's great to uh, finally see him again after uh, many years. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, and I want to remind you that uh, Neophiles runs once a week on the Mondo Globo network, mondoglobo.net, and it's sponsored by Life Enhancement Products, life-enhancement.com. And uh, thanks to Life Enhancement for uh, keeping me alive and awake today. See you next time.